folks, this is Jason from The High Route to intro episode 10 of The High Route podcast. In this episode, which was a fun one to record, we discuss ski alpinism with Sam Hennessy, Michael Gardner, and Adam Fabricant. If you are a listener to our podcast, you are likely familiar with Adam at this point. If you are new to Hennessy and Gardner, we link to some resources about their Alaska range shenanigans in the show notes. We'll keep it tight. This episode is mostly about the trio's 2021 climb of Denali's Cassine Ridge, followed by their first ski descent of the mountain's northwest buttress and stroll out across the park's tundra to Wonder Lake. For a 64-hour jaunt, this was an expansive push. Here's the push slash plug for our website. You can find an ever-growing catalog of stories and reviews at our site. The High Route. Our site has hyphens in the name, but due to the wonders of search engines, if you just simply search for The High Route, we should pop up at the top of the list. Otherwise, the web address is the-high-route.com. Hyphen is definitely not spelled out. It's just a dash between the words. Our podcasts are free, yet are not free to produce or host on a server. If you are enjoying our podcast, please consider subscribing to the site as our podcast and stories are reader supported. That's it for the plug. We start the podcast conversation a bit before proper introductions. And again, much thanks to Sam, Mike, and Adam for taking the time to share their story. Okay, we're going to jump right into it. What is Adam's worst quality when you're holed up with him in an assault type tent? <laughs> I mean, for someone who's really small, he takes up a lot of space. And so, you know, it's difficult to have enough room to sleep. <laughs> yeah, he was once described as a Tasmanian devil in the tent. Self, self-proclaimed self Tasmanian devil. Um. I don't recall that exact statement, but uh, I, I do. I do okay. like my space. What type of tent did you guys? Well, there's a lot to cover here, but I'm just curious. On that casino climb, what did you bring? Just like a first light or something? <laughs> Tried and true first light. Two person, I assume. Correct. Yeah, we needed something that had a mosquito net, and so we had some other options. But uh, the first light is the only one that has a mosquito net, which I always thought was kind of stupid, but. It turns out for this one, it was kind of nice. Yeah, right. It's like dual purpose storms, light, mm-hmm. and mosquitoes for low country in Alaska. And bugs, yeah, totally. Yeah, perfect. Um, okay, let's go to Sam. Worst attribute when he's holed up in a tent. He makes the rest of us look bad with his productivity. He's always like learning French or something like that. Like mostly on like longer expeditions but i always feel like i'm really wasting my time just sitting there staring at the wall when i hear sam like practicing french or something in his sleeping bag yeah when we were at base camp before we embarked on this climb and ski he was reading about like pretty much how covid started and how viruses happened i was reading like a rom-com for the 400th time or something (laughs) 
Wow. Okay, but I think <laughs> that yeah, I would say like that's could also be a positive attribute a little bit, like in terms of like his optimizing his time on the planet. I like that a little bit. Okay, cool. I am all about optimization. That's that's very true. Okay, I like that, Michael. Throwing shade his way a little bit in a first light. If you don't have that much food, Gardner, he's a hungry guy. He uses a lot of energy. Yeah, he doesn't know how to chill. He could get a little restless. Yeah, Adam Adam loves to chill. You might not be able to tell, but I mean, hot tubs, saunas. These are kind of the places where Adam hangs out. Yeah, not a chiller. Not like me. Well, I think that's fun, but like, well, if you're up like doing something that's you know a push... How are you chilling, Adam? Well, maybe on the push, I'm not chilling too hard. Yeah. Okay. It's kind of more of a state of mind, though, really. <laughs> I see it. I would say the physical appearance sort of embodies that ethos a little bit, at least from my perception. Okay. <laughs> so, um, brief intros here with, you know, just sort of, I, I think a lot of folks listening probably know who you folks are, but. Let's just kind of give brief intros and start with, I'm just going around here on my screen. I just minimized it a little bit. So Mike, why don't you start? I'm Mike Gardner. I'm from, well, I live in Kelly, Wyoming, spent most of my life in and around the Tetons and uh, I enjoy skiing and climbing in the big mountains when possible, the bigger, the better. And I like to mostly get out with the two other guys on this screen more than anybody. And yeah, I don't know. I was recently trying to give an intro and my buddy told me that I was best described as a skateboarder reluctantly in a climber's body, which I think kind of fits it a little bit. It's accidental a little bit, but. Or are you a climber in a skateboarder's body? Ooh, starting to feel that way a little bit with all these injuries. Hmm. <laughs> mm. Sam. My name's Sam. Uh, I grew up in Port Angeles, Washington. I live in Bozeman, Montana these days, uh, sort of part-time or quarter-time, you might say. But um, yeah, I work as a guide climbing, skiing. Um, I do that stuff on my days off mostly too. And yeah, I don't know how to skateboard at all, which makes me always seem super lame in the airport with Gardner. Skateboard, yeah. Likewise, can you at least like balance on a skateboard? Mm, yeah, sure. I mean, I could stand on one if it's not moving. What about like a long board with like a, a nice platform going on a gradual descent? Uh, I've never tried. I think I oh. crash. Okay. I bumped some hills in college. Really, Flagstaff? Yeah, just more like more like going for it. Yeah, you like sent Flagstaff on a longboard. Yeah, middle of the night, um, you know that kind of stuff. Really, from the flag or from that turnoff from the flag, or all the way from that freaking like steep ass upper part, which is all burly. The, the details are are fuzzy um, at this point of where you're talking about, but yeah, I like to, I like to bomb hills when I was okay. younger. Do you wear a helmet then? I've I've never really been a huge fan of the helmet. Well, I'm aware of this. Okay, it seems to be an on ongoing theme on our podcast. But okay, Look at that hair. He didn't need a helmet. Um, we did. We did bring helmets when we climbed the scene. We 
we discussed the merits of them. Were there merits? <sighs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we, we it's like not worth the it conversations more kind of afterwards. It's good for optics, you know. No, it is actually. So I think I'll, I'll just be honest. Wait, we, yeah, if we get optics, there. That's, yeah. <laughs> the optics are huge. It's exhausting. Okay. Just saying, yeah. as a parent, opti- go with the optics. Okay. So, Adam, okay, intro. People probably know you, but go ahead. Yep. My name's, my name's Adam. Grew up in New York. Live in Kelly, Wyoming. Um, work as a climbing and skiing guide. And I really enjoy backcountry skiing in all of its forms. How many forms do you think there are, Adam? Well, I, that, that's actually a nice open-ended question. I mean, yeah, you know, what, what we're talking about, some might put in the, the ski alpinism uh, mentality. But then if you think of the classic backcountry ski tour, maybe someone's just going for a shuffle out on a local pass. Um, mm. Maybe it's Teton Pass. Maybe it's... Loveland Pass, maybe it's Togedy Pass, all the different Togedy Pass, um, Bozeman and Pass, they just, Bozeman Pass. You know, they go up a thousand feet and glide down some hill that's barely avalanche terrain, but they've got a smile on their face, and um, all of that goes into that human-powered skiing category, and it's really just whatever seems most enjoyable to the the skier because that that's the beauty of the the art. Like from a guiding standpoint, what segment of that population or that demographic do you gravitate towards? Um, I try to diversify my clientele from people that want to enjoy soft powder snow with relatively low risk and low stress, you know, as a sustainable way to make a living. But I also have a, a large portion of my clients that are very type A, go-getters, highly motivated and objective-oriented. We have a saying in the guiding industry that we all have clients that are similar to their guides. So, yeah, um, it, it's quite fun to have those type of skiers, but I don't want that to be all I have because you don't want to redline every day. That's not sustainable. I hear you. Cool. Okay, so how, how did you guys all meet? Uh, you know, I'm curious about that. I know that you, it's, it, you all are roughly in your kind of mid thirties. Um, or Matt, Adam, maybe pushing maybe a little south, uh, like north of that. Maybe, I don't know, but I forget, but you're all like mid 30 ish. How did you meet? Um, and then we'll jump into some specifics about kind of the Alaska and the ski mountaineering thing. I think I met both of these guys in various, uh, capacities in Alaska. I met Michael on the Ruth. We were both on like personal climbing trips, not together, but with other people. And I'm pretty sure we met at 14 camp, Adam. I I don't recall. I know at one point I, I, I dragged like myself and all my clients tents like through your <laughs> camp at 14 camp. That was sort of awkward. Um, yeah. Navigational blunder. Um. <laughs> I Yeah, I don't know. I can't remember if we met before that or not. I think Adam, you and I met when we were first both started working for AMS in Alaska that season. I think we we're on the West Butchers together. As I recall, it was your birthday. Yep. That staring out from fourteen at the nice midnight sun. Talking about the adventures to come. Inspiration. Yeah. Colors. Precisely. 
Yeah, so Alaska would probably be the mutual ground there for everybody in and around the Alaska Range. So, but one of the things is, and I wanted you guys to help me with this. So the climbs that precede this Cassine Traverse down, I think it's the the Northwest Buttress, that you guys had kind of, an, you know, Michael and Sam specifically had sort of a fairly uh, fruitful season. I think you landed in the Ruth, you did the Isis face, correct? Mm-hmm. Is that still in this ski alpinism style? Yeah, we had our skis. That route is a lot more climbing than the Cassine and a lot less skiing to get down, but it makes a lot of sense to bring your skis and use them uh, on the approach and on the descent. And were you using, when you say on the approach and on the descent, so you're climbing, as I read it, you guys are climbing in your whatever ski boots. Mm -hmm. The idea with that too, is it's like the logical way to climb that wall. If you, you land in the West Fork of the Ruth and then the top of the Isis face, you're pretty far out there at like 15,000 feet or so on the South buttress of Denali. And to descend the face doesn't really make a lot of sense. So then you can like go down the South buttress, but that puts you over on the other side or in the Cahiltna glacier. Right. So we were able to then like the whole idea with some of the ski alpinism stuff was to be able to take out like the super arduous approach. And instead, I think the idea was like to create one big odyssey out of these climbs and skis instead of like these segmented things, like an approach, a climb and a descent, but like kind of a start to finish all encompassing journey. So it's like the ski alpinism thing sort of arose from that. I feel like we're just trying to approach these objectives and these walls and stuff with the tools to, allow for fluid styly passage from one place to another. And the ISIS really embodies that because you start on one glacier and you end up on another, you know? Yeah. That's interesting. Cause I think that, and, and Sam, you and I, and maybe Michael, I've spoken to you about this before, but like you've noted in that, I, I think it's like the a 2021 Sam, you wrote the AAJ article mm-hmm. just about um, some previous descents. And maybe one was like a continuous descent of the Wickersham that was like inspiration Oh yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. But this is a little, and I don't want to like, I think that in itself, you know, is inspiring, but the, but Michael said something that was sort of resonated, this fluidity of like movement, right? So you're able to like climb something that's a highly technical face. And for most alpinists, they're using, you know, mountaineering specific boots and they're not dragging skis up it. And to vision that ascent and then be like, yeah, we can pull that off in ski boots and then uh, ski down and, and tap into the Cahiltna, in my sense, is a whole nother way of visioning something than, you know, top down descent and a full descent at that. For me, it just like once you kind of bring yourself around to the idea that climbing with ski boots and with skis isn't really that much harder than climbing with like normal climbing gear, which I mean, the equipment these days is totally incredible. You know, the ski boots are super light. They're actually lighter than your climbing boots. The skis, if you bring, you know, schemo race skis, they're, they're pretty light. They don't get in the way that much then it just sort of becomes fairly logical, not for every objective, but for certain objectives to go and, you know, to go with your skis because the descents are kind of crazy sometimes, or they're just really long is another big thing in Alaska. You know, you can spend days walking down these various 
you know, snowy ridgelines, or you can put your skis on and do it in a couple hours. You know, Aaron Maynard and uh, Peter Dale, when they just kind of went up and over Denali with their skis and skied the Wickersham wall, walked out to Wonder Lake. That, yeah, that's hugely inspiring. Super cool. You should definitely track those guys down if you can, because I think they had a pretty cool adventure. And yeah, there, there's a bunch of people who've done this sort of thing. Um, maybe not quite on the same level of technicality, so to speak, but it's maybe just like a bit more of a step up in the climbing. Uh, but people have been, you know, doing rad ski traverses all over the range for a long time. And it's really, yeah, it's cool to bring that sort of approach into the alpine climbing world where often the descent is something that just sort of sucks, you know, it's like either we do like 30 repels and it's takes forever, or we have to walk down this ridge or there's all these crevasses. There's a variety of ways that you might come down and none of them are like all that fun. So it's once you bring the skis in, it's pretty cool. I find all of you humble. Okay. But that said, Sam saying that, you know, climbing a technical route that most people are doing in climbing boots, you know, in with ski gear, you know, for, for the common person, I, I, you know, like me, I'm like, okay, Hmm. That might be a, a tough sell. Um, but like, you know, I'm curious, let me throw Adam to that question. Like, how does that, you know, as someone who focuses more on the ski mountaineering side of things than the high end alpinism, um, how does that sort of gear choice affect climbing for you? And in this particular situation, I'm just curious how that plays out. Is it an easy transition? Well, using, yeah, you're using ski boots and technical ground. I mean, I guess I've done all of my most challenging climbs with ski boots. Sure, I've done some cragging, you know, whatever. But like all of my climbs that I'm, I, I, that were most challenging in a pair of ski boots. And I think the main reason it's not mainstream is most people are either climbers or skiers or they do one or the other, but the idea of mixing the two is not what they're looking for. They'd rather go focus fully on a challenging alpine climb, which totally makes sense, or fully on a ski descent. And the mountains within the Alaska range, especially, they inspire someone that has that full skill set to bring it all together. So I think the gear is neither here nor there. Like I think that's a big part of it, but the reason that people aren't doing this left and right is because like they don't want to, because it's not the experience they're looking for. And it's not outside of the Alaska range. There's not many places where it's like, Oh, that's definitely what you should do. You should go do that hard route with a pair of skis on your back. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that the Alps are a place where people are doing all sorts of, you know, kind of like climb to ski type missions. And often it is a practicality thing, like the approach or the descent is very skiable. And like people climb the North face of Le Dois all the time with skis. Michael, anything to add on that? Yeah. I mean, I think it, it's kind of been touched on, but just to drive it home, it's, it depends on what kind of experience you're looking to have. Like if you hone in on gear being the, the defining factor or limiting factor in a mountain adventure, you're kind of like looking at <clears throat> one little through a pretty narrow lens versus like 
I think the three of us have talked at length, like that trip up and over Denali was one of our favorite times in the mountains period among a long list of a bunch of times in the mountains, because the defining goal and the feature was like the whole goal was to have a wild adventure, you know, and it became about using the tools to create that kind of adventure versus like, this is a climb or this is a ski. You know, I think like we look at climbing and skiing kind of in a linear fashion in that regard, like you climb up a wall and then you descend down via ropes or walking, or you climb up a mountain and then you ski the via the easiest way. And then you ski down the most technical way versus like, what is this cool? What's the, just the right blend of challenging climbing, challenging skiing, newness is desirable if possible and long arduous walks is cool and just like kind of charting an adventure versus like defining it under a ski or a climb or or one specific angle of moving in the mountains and again like adam said there's places that make sense the alaska range being one of them the alps being another um but it speaks to all of our skill sets as well as like our partnership that we all we don't just like climbing or just like skiing trying to find like the coolest adventure we can have in the mountains with a good team has kind of been our guiding light. It seems like. So, so you, so to have my time frame correct, you guys climb the ISIS face, you bump down to the Cahiltna, you climb the North buttress of Hunter, go to the top, come down with some rest days, hopefully in between there. Was it the same season? Then you guys went up the infinite spur. No, that was in okay. 2019. Got you. Okay. Yeah. And that was kind of like the first time we'd done something like that. Okay. And that's what I, okay. So my question is then for, for Mike and Sam on that infinite spur climb where you climbed in ski boots and, uh, you know, you descended on skis in a, what looks to me a pretty quick turnaround, uh, base camp, to, you know, back to base camp. How did that sort of inform, if that in fact was sort of like your first time that you're envisioning some adventure like this, how did that inform you in terms of like what the possibilities were? Because I think again, like that particular climb is still, yeah, formidable. And most people think of that strictly as like alpine climbing, climbing boots kind of thing. But how did that inform you just like moving forward? I think you said in 2019, so a couple of years before this traverse i mean it really just sort of like showed us that we had this idea kind of for alaska and it's not like totally groundbreaking but it was just like a bit of a i don't know like a mental shift um of when we wanted to go climb the infinite spur and kind of trying to come up with a logical way to do it and then deciding oh maybe we could go for it with these you know schema race skis and kind of uh yeah, bring more of like a ski tour, ski mountaineering mentality to that route. Um, we weren't really sure that it was going to really be super practical or like work out all that well for a big route in Alaska for, you know, just a variety of different reasons from the uh, equipment breaking or the boots not being warm enough or, you know, the climbing being super annoying. Uh, and obviously we'd climbed in our ski boots and we'd skied in the skinny skis and all that sort of stuff before. But yeah, I don't know. It just sort of like when it worked out about as well as we could have hoped, we're kind of like, Oh, there's all sorts of other stuff that we could potentially use these tactics on. And obviously you get better. 
and refine certain things as you go. But yeah, that first climb went really well. Michael, anything to add on that? Yeah, I mean, it, it was we we went into it thinking like this is going to be a little bit of a a test, you know, to see like if this is even feasible because we approached it in a manner of deciding that that was like this makes sense because the approach is super long to get to the base and like reading other people's and hearing other people's tales of the infinite spur getting to the base and descending the route is some of the biggest cruxes of climbing that thing. Like, yeah, the terrain is somewhat challenging and it's a really big route, but descending off the summit and wrapping all the way around the sub peaks and back to Mount Crossing took the other faster teams who've climbed the route like twice as long in some cases than the actual climb, you know, and then getting to the base is, super time consuming as well. And then it's the kind of like conundrum of what do you do with your flotation? Then you like go back and retrieve. So anyway, the whole ski alpinism tactic kind of came from like sheerly a practicality standpoint. And then also just a natural evolution of our desires and skill sets in the mountains. Like we're, we're not like climbers learning to ski or skiers learning to climb. Like those two crafts have evolved simultaneously. It feels like in all of our careers. And so it seemed like the coolest adventure we could have and like kind of put together this full, again, kind of fluid journey, you know, like we were able to do the whole thing in like a, a continuous push from base camp to base camp, which was pretty sweet. Back to 2021, you guys have climbed the ISIS face, bumped back to the Kahiltna, climbed Hunter, mm -hmm. and then you're still up for more, correct? accurate timeline there yep yeah that was all early season shenanigans we all went to work basically we're all guiding on the west buttress and we all had trips that were more or less simultaneous okay and was this sort of and, and i know from from just sort of reading a little bit that at least michael and sam you guys have been sort of positing some cool adventures in the past it sounded like there was some rainy season where you were just like shooting the shit about like hey what about this what about that so you guys are all acclimating. At what point was it like, yeah, I think we should go give it a try this year, bump up, you know, climb the casino and do the ski descent. The Northwest buttress idea came from Adam and it was kind of an integral part of this thing actually happening because in our original kind of conception of what this traverse would look like, we would descend down a different ridge that would drop us into the Muldrow Glacier, but that season, the Muldrow Glacier surged and basically is to this day like fairly impassable. But at that in that moment, it was like definitely way too broken. You just couldn't go down it. And so we were kind of like, oh, shit, like maybe this traverse is going to have to get postponed for a while. Um, and then Adam sort of brought up the idea of potentially the Northwest Buttress and that got the wheels turning. And yeah, it was all kind of Adam's psyched to go to the Northwest buttress. And then it, but it, I mean, it was still like a pipe dream. The funny thing about guiding the West buttress is you have a lot of time to riff with each other and get psyched, but you don't actually know if the window is going to rise or if you're going to all summit at the same day or even summit at all or get acclimated, you know? So there's like still, I would say like there was a lot left up in the air pretty much until like a few days before we launched on the thing really. Adam, where did that vision come from? I'd, I'd looked at it as a potential ski run. The Wickersham sort of the obvious big one on that side. And that seemed a little ambitious to do with the super skinny skis. 
Billy and I had considered the Northwest Buttress as just a, a ski descent in itself, and it didn't seem overly complex or steep for a descent. It, not saying it was simple, but it seemed quite manageable and straightforward. And we were able to look at some good photos that gave us enough intel. And I think we were, Mike and I were at 11 camp when we started like really thinking that would be a good idea. Um, these guys have been thinking up and over the Cassine for some time, you know, the progression from Foraker to Denali with the ski, skis on the back. And that spring, they floated the idea to me, and I was like, eh, we'll see what happens. And I threw in the skinny skis and some ice tools into my pack, thinking, like, yeah, there's a chance this trip will happen. There's a chance it won't. Um, but I was psyched to throw the little gear in the the duffel. And my little gear, just to run through it, like, all three of you, I mean, I haven't, I've seen a photo, but I think one of you, like, for sure had skimo gear, like 65 underfoot. Let's just go around skis underfoot, Sam. I use Dinafit PDGs, which are uh, 60 underfoot, I believe. Yeah, yeah I've been using uh, the Atomic Schemo ski, which is like 65 or something like that. Um, pretty similar dimensions. Yeah, I had a Black Crow's like 76 underfoot ski, and they were also the longest um, in a negative way. I think, I think it would have been nice if they were a little shorter. How long? Like, like uh, I've since sold them, but uh, or I think they were like one seventy one or one seventy two. Not very long, but okay. So you guys, you guys set up to to climb the Cassine, um, and I think I have this correct. You guys took sort of. I know, like Sam and Mike are kind of known for these, like you know, recently like fast single push sense of technical ground in this particular case, which was a, you know, in 2021, um, you brought a tent and sounds like maybe took a nine hour period and maybe a five hour period. I have notes somewhere, but to kind of like rest a bit and chill. But if you guys, and maybe we can like start with one of you and I'll let you, you know, whomever wants to lead, but what were the tactics on the ascent and how, yeah. So let's just start like macro view. What were the tactics? You brought a tent, you were going to stop and rest refuel periodically. Yeah. I'll jump into it. Uh, the idea with the tent was two parts. One, the, the figuring that the North side would encompass all sorts of shenanigans that we probably had no idea what we'd get into. And so just having, as Sam mentioned earlier, like we wanted a bug net in our tent, you know, like we might be camping on the tundra with, you know, flesh eating mosquitoes or whatnot. Um, and the style on the ascent was we started at midnight from base camp, I believe it was, um, and climbed continuously, like went up the East fork and then, gained the Cassine Ridge via the original start and um, climbed to about 14,000 feet, unlike the the Hanging Glacier, if I'm correct, to the Berkshund there and intended to sort of sit through like the heat of the day there um, and then kind of punch up into the less technical terrain higher up in the, you know, in the colder parts of the night and just put on all of our puffy gear and kind of waddle through the cold part of the night. Um, 
and so we had the tent for like that first segment at 14 where we pitched the tent and like hung out through the heat of the day just to kind of like nap and rest and then figured we would use it at some point through the next, but that was kind of like the, the original, the initial game plan for the first leg. And is that how it kind of manifested? Yeah, more or less. I was just going to add that, you know, we kind of had a couple different time constraints where we wanted, we needed to approach the route while the glacier was frozen. So like going in the middle of the night slash the early morning. Um, and then we wanted to be skiing down the Northwest buttress kind of in the afternoon evening when it was in the sun. Um, and then, you know, kind of what happened in between and what happened after that was sort of just kind of, we figured we'd figure it out, but, um, we did, that was like the two, we were like, well, we would like to be skiing off of the North summit of Denali by 5 PM and we're going to leave at midnight so that the glacier's frozen while we approach. Um, and it was, we, it would be very unrealistic to go all the way from base camp, you know, to the summit of the North summit via the Cassine in 17 hours. So it's like, okay, so we're going to have to bivy somewhere or at least stop and rest and refuel, recharge. And then we didn't really have any idea how long it would take us to climb the Cassine. We figured, you know, 15 ish hours moving, um, most likely some somewhere around there you know, we didn't really know how long it would take us to traverse from the main summit to the North summit, that sort of thing. But we figured if we summited Denali around midday on day two, then we would be able to scooch over to the North summit in a few hours and then start our descent from there. And is that like roughly how it played out? Yeah, pretty much. It's, I think we did more or less summit around noon, although I can't be sure, uh, without looking at photos. Um, like one o'clock. Yeah. We summited at like one and I'm pretty sure we did ski off the North summit right around five. Cause I remember it took us about six hours to ski it. And it was 11 PM when we were like done skiing out on the glacier, like starting to traverse away from the mountain from base camp. I mean, I, I don't want to get wrapped up in times. I'm not really, you know, I'm not a huge time person. Maybe because I'm slow, but like, but that question is like, how, how long did it take you? You said you left from base camp to the top. Were we talking, I mean, I'm just trying to keep that sort of chronology there. How long did that take? I guess that would have been around 36 hours if, uh, okay. Math is Got adding up. Yeah. Okay. Um, how did you guys climb that terrain? You know, again, like I'm not sure a lot of listeners are coming to this, understand like the technical aptitude uh, of you folks, right? And I'll link to all that stuff. But, you know, what were the, what kind of strategies did you use to move quickly well, through technical terrain? Yeah, go ahead. It was a pretty simple um, strategy. Solo as much as possible. And then... I have the least amount of experience in that terrain. So for a pitch where they slash I thought I would want a rope, they would solo up and fix the rope to normally just one piece of gear. And we had a six mil rad line and then I would just micro traction. And I think we did that for like six pitches. And then the rest of it, we all just simul sold 
So there's no belaying. And the whole, like, the solo and fix thing worked pretty well with the team of three because uh, one of the ch- more challenging parts of it was it had just snowed for, like, a week straight. And so the trail breaking was very real. And when we did get to those technical pitches that Adam's talking about, like Sam and I would kind of solo and one of us would keep going to break, put the trail in and the other fix the rope. And then we could like kind of keep trading like that and just keep, uh, keep the trench going all the way up. Yeah. And although the, the seed on paper might seem like an Uber technical route, there's, there's quite a bit of mountain climbing and not that much proper challenging climbing. So just, just clarify what you mean by mountain climbing for folks. Steep snow, easy ice, super moderate mixed terrain, sort of just where you have to keep moving efficiently. So, I mean, we see it every year in the Alaska range that there's these uber talented climbers and they're going to attempt the casino and, I think the main thing that can challenge them is the mountain climbing. You know, you have the altitude and the endurance and what's your strategy and how do you move efficiently. And it's pretty easy to move efficiently if you're not using a rope that often. Um, You know, ropes slow you down. Sure, they keep you attached to the mountain, but it's not always about safety here. Now, is it? (laughs) (laughs) That's too much? (laughs) No, I mean, like, no, I'm not. Speed, speed is safety. Speed is safety. Yeah, speed is safety. Yeah, and like the style we were going for was just to to move efficiently and have fun throughout the time, not like for for really all of us, like the climbing with it, the, the crux, it to the crux is just the, the whole experience. Who derived safety last? Put it all together. Who is that? <laughs> Safety last? Yeah. Who is that? Well, I don't know if I'd go that far. <laughs> no, no, I, I wouldn't well, go I'm that not, far. No, no, okay. We, but no, hold on. Yeah, Jason. We, you're, you're putting words we in our helmets. Here. You're making us seem reckless. We, yeah, we had, we helmets, had helmets on. Helmets. We had a yeah. rope. We even roped up on a glacier. That, but that's hmm? not, no, you guys just jumped to like what I'm inferring. Because <laughs> I understand what you're doing and your competency. That's by, and I think hopefully we're in sort of a, I feel like, at least what we project at the higher route, I I feel like it's each person's, it's their own choice to determine for themselves what is safe and what is not. So I don't want you that. That's not what I was inferring at all, right? But I I literally am just yeah. Asking, no, you, like, you, Jason, yeah. you said what you said. Um, <laughs> I did. I said, but yeah. Like, <laughs> but the three of us, we had a a very transparent conversation. Um, I was not willing to solo the whole route and I told them that and they were totally okay with it. And I don't think that slowed us down a ton because someone would just go up like 40 meters and put like one cam in clove hitch rope to it. And I would just use my little micro traction. Um, that seems to work quite nicely. Two, two cams. Well, we only had, but it was yeah, usually like two, two cams. cams. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But really what what I'm trying to say is like that and not trying to say like I I understand that, you know, and I'm not someone who's going to project like this person's being reckless or that person's 
not being reckless or whatever. Like I Seems said, like we're some all adults. <laughs> no, this is not a fucking backpedal, Adam, at all. Let's, let's watch that language. It's all recorded too, so we can go back and listen, dude. But, but I think like really what's going on is that the ground is comfortable enough that it's like you feel very comfortable. Oh, yeah, we're right at home there. I guess that's – yeah. I'd say Mike and Sam on the casino is the same as an average person on a sidewalk. <laughs> and for wow. me, I did not feel as comfortable, but it, it would be like, you know, on a hiking trail <laughs> or maybe a, a third-class, fourth-class scramble. Do you usually <laughs> uh, rope solo the trail, Adam? Uh, you know, sometimes uh, there's some technical portions um, getting into Garnet Canyon. It can be tricky, so for sure. But, but in all honesty, Jason, what it comes down to is movement, right? And if you're really comfortable in your fitness and your ability to climb that moderate rock and ice, you know, it thinks of it more as like, all right, how much vertical do we have? and How quickly we, can we go? I mean, these guys have just come off of the North Buttress Mount Hunter and the ice's face. So the casino, if you look at, if you actually like break it down pitch by pitch, it's quite a bit of moderate climbing. I'm just, in the meantime, I've been trying to look at the derivation of safety last. And that's, again, I, you can, we will go back. I am not implying this. I know you guys. Okay. Well, we're, we're moving on. We're just a little sensitive. We've been called reckless before. Yeah. I feel like we're in a post. <laughs> well, whatever. I think folks are allowed to make their own, like, calls in the mountains right and like that's <laughs> each person's prerogative. absolutely um yeah but but i guess some of that too is like if you think of the three of us on a team uh, i mean i know i was it, it was a big deal to me to be on this team with these guys knowing that they were more talented and more comfortable in this terrain you know as climbers but they were okay with me joining as a friend rather than like, Oh, we can go X faster. More like we can go as a team of three and have fun. And that made it a really rewarding experience for me personally. Okay. I want to put a pin in this cause I want to get, we'll come back to this. This is sort of a pin question 10, like a guy, a pin or like, <laughs> did i have snark i have snarky children dude just gonna interrupt him um okay so but i want to come back to that it's sort of, sort of the attributes you like bring up this concept of a friends right and i think that's super important is like you guys are friends it's not necessarily that you're like oh i'm choosing to climb with this or that person because technically the 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 best at this or that Maybe there's an element of that, but you guys are friends. Um, and, and so we'll get to sort of question 10, but I just want you guys to be thinking about that because I am going to be asking like what each person sort of brings to the team. And that can be both sort of technical attributes, but also just like affability or whatever, you know, they're bringing so that you come home stoked and not like, fuck, I'm never talking to that person again, um, which to me is important. So. Um, you guys top out any, like at that point, I'm, I'm assuming this is like an onsite. It's obviously, it's the first descent, but it's an onsite descent. What was that sort of atmosphere at the, like at the top when you guys are about to descend and just sort of the calculus of the, of the discussion? 
it was pretty dreamy. Like getting the transition from the South summit to the North summit was so cool. We were skiing down the West buttress route to Denali pass there. And we're just high fiving all of our guide buddies that are cruising up to the summit. We ran into Colby Coombs, uh, who the owner of AMS, who was like camping at the call there and just like vibes were really high. And then from there we departed kind of over to the moon. I would call it like heading to the North summit is a place that people rarely go on Denali. So like at that moment, it really set in like this feeling of it, adventure and remoteness, you know, that that was the sort of like the back half of the journey that we were all really thrilled to embark on, you know, cause it was unknown terrain to, you know, to, to us, but also just like very little info about it and things like that. Um, but yeah, clicking in on the North summit, uh, well, the, <laughs> I don't know. What, what do you think about clicking in on the North Summit, Adam? Well, I had uh, some technical difficulties clicking into my bindings, and my my skis shot away. Really? Yeah, yeah, but I th- I, yeah, M- Mike somehow like cat reflexes just like skied down and got him. So that wow, that, that wasn't a great start to the descent, <laughs> especially for me. I'm assuming, obviously, no leashes. Too heavy. No, we didn't <laughs> yeah. have any leashes. I got that. <laughs> leashes are for the dog park. Yeah. <laughs> when you don't, that. when you don't bring, when you don't bring sleeping bags, you typically don't have leashes. <laughs> <laughs> no, but that was pretty entertaining, to be honest. Uh, Adam like went to lock in his toes, and then just like skis shot up in the air and headed over for the. <laughs> <laughs> the uh the dark side of the moon and was able to grab them and then we he walked down a little bit and we clicked in and uh yeah but then the first it was like a little bit wind bored and chattery and then we kind of wrapped around and i'll definitely never forget this slope there was like a really cool video adam took of i think i kind of opened up that first little slope and like there's just this beautiful glow in the distance and clouds creeping up up the lower glacier there, the, the Peters and just like essentially looking at, you know, 14,000 feet of skiing or something like that below us into the clouds. And it was kind of smooth and creamy and didn't necessarily continue in that way, but I, yeah, kind of euphoric place to make turns. And I think like the whole, this whole journey thing comes down to moments like that for me. Like there's like, the climb, the ski, the walk out. And then there's in this whole totality, this wild odyssey and adventure. And then there's also these very standout moments that I will likely never forget. Like I could, I could close my eyes and go back to one of those turns just right off the top into the midnight sun. Yeah. And the, the top, I don't know, two, 3000 feet, sort of moderate skiing and pretty easy to lose elevation quickly which is just good. We're like feeling better and better. Um, the lower we get on that sort of pitch that Mike's talking about that I took a video of Mike's, uh, opening up first. I think Mike found the limitations of the, the race bindings and came close to breaking what the heel piece. Um, yeah. Yeah. We had to like, you know, slow it down a little bit, realize that we, we weren't on GS skis. You had like like little dinky race bindings. 
that's what you got. I mean, I'm assuming like super lightweight. Okay. Yeah. My bindings were pretty heavily used by a couple of my other friends. That's why I think I had some issues clicking in. <laughs> I'm calling operator error there. <laughs> I told him afterwards. I figured it was someone else's problem. Sam, any thoughts on that? Those shenanigans are just like heading to the top and like sort of, um, yeah, it's kind of, I, I would, again, like I know you guys have been on some epics and just not, again, you're not descending the route or you're not walking off the route. You're sort of like skiing in a cool unknown terrain. Yeah, it was, uh, I just thought the whole thing was really, really fun and engaging just because you, there was never like a time when your brain was off other than, you know, when we were bivied or whatever, but, um, there were just so many like components to this journey and it was kind of like sweet to be like, Oh, we just climbed the casino, but that was really just sort of like the beginning. Now we have to figure out how to get over to the North summit where we've never been before. Oh, now we're, uh, you know, now we're skiing and on siting uh, all this kind of, not like super steep exposed ski train, but it was somewhat involved and the conditions were highly variable as they often are in the big mountains. And so, yeah, you're just like, your brain is just like on the whole time. And then, but you're constantly switching gears between like technical climbing, hiking, being really cold, skiing, climbing again. Now we're skiing for real. And it was just, really cool and the weather was perfect it was like kind of unbelievable we like took our boots off on the north summit and like dried out our socks it was so hot so that's you know pretty rare for 19k yeah what i'm hearing from the others about you optimizing time and like learning french in your spare time on a climb like that type of engaging type you know you're moving from like alpinism mountain climbing to skiing to like slogging through the tundra is sort of i mean i'm assuming that's like all mentally engaging and that sort of suits your like optimal sam Hennessy. well let's not oversell especially my french i'm well, i'm not uh <laughs> you know i'm not super proficient but uh i don't know i like to stay busy the switch from the south side to the north side of the mountain is sort of the west the casino is relatively close still to the west buttress it's where there's people, it's where there's infrastructure. Your sense of commitment is relatively low. And when you drop onto the north side, like the northwest buttress, none of us knew many people that had climbed that route. And it's a side of the range none of us had spent a ton of time on. And I feel like that's where the true adventure begins. And like, I think that's when we were all like almost the giddiest. Like, oh, like we're going over here now. And skiing. Like every thousand feet we ski, we're feeling better, we're feeling stronger. And it's like, ooh, we'll see what's around this bend. And like we found challenges and obstacles, but nothing like super daunting. Um, like it was more just really fun and engaging. I mean, 15,000 feet of skiing, like what could be better? You know, just you're going to get it all from really firm to isothermic and everything in between. And there are the few pitches of like superb face shot powder skiing, um, you know, by a few pitches, probably like a couple thousand feet, uh, which was really, really enjoyable. And the granite boulders were down climbing parts of the Northwest buttress. We're on this ridge and 
there's like epic granite boulders, like immaculate rock and all of that. Like to me, it was unreal. I'd echo that. I mean, like, well, it's just when I, I'm just getting all, you know, just thinking about it. It's this like Are you getting emotional. Emotional is not the right word, but I mean, that's definitely the longest ski run I've had in my life. Like 15,000 feet of continuous gliding. And then just like all the different. Yeah. Like I think you summed it up pretty well there, Adam, but we were giddy and excited and like having a blast and joking whilst navigating, not necessarily like super challenging skiing, but complex terrain, you know, like a 15,000 foot ski run with serious Ciracs and, you know, hazards and whatnot. But like why it stands out to me as one of the cooler moments in the mountains is like to be with two of my best friends treating it the same way we might treat like a, not treating it the same way, but it felt like we were back home, like skiing the grand or something, just like bantering to each other and swapping leads and like deciphering this complex terrain on site through various conditions into clouds and then like ice and uh, to be like, that kind of speaks to the team so much for me is like to be in that kind of terrain, pretty high stakes and like super out there and remote and, it stands out to all of us as like just a blast. Like we were just bantering and laughing and having a good time. Um, whilst like kind of being at a pretty like far out there place in the world, doing some really cool long skiing. Yeah. I'd say it was like type one fun. Like the stress levels weren't super high on the descent. Um, like just like see what's around the next corner and we're either going to ski it we're going to down climb with our skis on and we're going to down climb with our crampons on and we'll just keep going. Yeah. I'm curious just from a technical, you can spend like a minute or two on this, but like when you guys, it sounded like there were a few blue ice sections where you guys transitioned to crampons. Um, do I have that right? And down climbed. Yeah. Um, I, I can interject here for a minute, Jason, well, if you would. Well, sure. Uh, yeah, and I'm not, this is just so to be clear, this is not like, I'm not saying the style was this or that. Okay. The question really is like, what does that look like from a technically, how does one transition in steep terrain? Well, yeah, no, there, there is one why well, I just have a, a story. So there's one point where I'm like, Hey, like maybe we will get our ice axe out and ski this. And Mike sort of mocked me, you know, as we discussed earlier, he's got that free riding background. And then we went a little lower and it got pretty icy. Um, and then I decided I would stop downhill skiing as I was on ice and Mike disagreed with that decision. So he tried to go a little further until he pretty much hip checked on the ice. And at that point, yeah, you drill in a screw if you need it or if you're in that icy of terrain, but you're just taking your skis off and putting your crampons on and then you're down climbing. Like we didn't have to do any repels or rope work on the descent, nor did we ever even consider it. And that specific slope though, as I recall, I might've yeah, gotten a little ambitious and I, I think I had to like place a screw and kind of hang from it to then put my crampons on. And Sam just sort of like stat 20 meters above us, laughing at both of us and switched onto his crampons. <laughs> that That is correct. Yeah. You descend and then you 
or essentially you're tr- you're scrambling across the tundra to. Well, let's wh- let's not go straight to the tundra, because I think it really. Why? Well, well, yeah, just, no, I, I think it really neat. Did, I, 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 just because I I want to be clear, like going through the text thread that the I want to make sure you get your shut eye, dude. That's all. That's true. I want to be respectful. Yeah. Adam doesn't want to miss any of the juicy details though here. Well, I, I think one of the highlights for all of us is like we got to the bottom of the proper ski descent and then we're on the glacier and there was a little bit of just crossing the glacier and it's known for some big crevasses and we had the rope on there. But then we had, I, I want to say, nine miles of dry glacier skiing and it's one, two in the morning. We're skiing below the Wickersham. There's pink light. It's like an ice skating rink, and it's just this gradual downhill. We're jumping over cracks. We're skiing fast. It's a hoot and a holler. We're going through the Toluna Icefall, um, which we were told that like we'd have to walk around, and we just like center punch it through it, and it seemed totally reasonable. And we're just psyched that none of us like snapped a ski in half. And I mean that nine miles that was like wildly wildly enjoyable and that was a big question mark on how efficient that would be and how fun and safe we could be in that terrain and besides mike jumping over a couple gapers for no reason um (laughs) things things went pretty smooth and i think that was just like a a really neat component of it that none of us knew what that was going to be like and yeah 100 percent. it was like fully psychedelic. I thought I was just like walking for the longest time because of the way the sun angle is there, you were just staring into the sun and to be like walking. The bugs were like Sam said, they weren't like crazy bad, but they were bad enough that you were trying not to stop much. So you just like, it felt to me like this perpetual motion that we'd been on for at that point. I don't think we'd stopped since the summit, which was like 20, you know, that it, the whole back half of the trip was like a 24 hour continuous movement, you know? So just, yeah, I mean, it, it, it stands out again. It's just like a pretty memorable out of body experience, more or less just wandering, wandering through the jump, the North side there. Totally. I think most of the out was, I mean, it sucked at times, but that part in particular was pretty dreamy. And then the rest of it was, you know, whatever there were like bugs and swamp and we were kind of just like walking for a lot longer than we thought it would take us but it was just like super dreamy and we were we'd been like more or less awake for almost three days at that point so we're kind of just in this delirious state but super pretty and it's all green and hot and but then you'd look back and denali's like this white like huge mountain in the distance and you're just kind of like didn't feel real it was really cool you guys remember the first couple hours of hiking out and it was all loamy yeah it was super easy just like yeah yeah it was like three or four hours of just beautiful tundra and then it turned into the mosquitoes and less enjoyable terrain so we caught the last bus by like five minutes but like we didn't have like we would have just been eating like candy bars and that would have sort of sucked and the bus driver ran over 
Sam ski boots, like fully ran over. Just, just one. yeah, just like full. And then he gets out of the bus, like, did did I run over that? My bad. But he did give us his popcorn, like his popcorn out of his own, like Ziploc bag, um, on the bus, which was you know that was quite nice. Yeah, well, those boots are retired, but I have the boots still in my cache in AK though, just as like a little memento. It's just this fully pancaked. <laughs> flattened alien rs which was yeah it's a bummer you know they don't make those boots anymore um yeah but hey you know trip was over yeah the boots they did their job yeah. trip was over and y'all are still friends because we're all talking on this and you're joking and so um two questions to sort of like i i am sort of curious like what each person brings to the team and maybe in their own mind and other pe- people can interject. So, th- so like, that's a, that's a closing question. And the other is, and I, it's sort of interesting cause I can, I can feel myself like, as you're explaining the euphoria, I'm like, Oh my gosh, that, you know, it's, it's a little bit infectious, right? I mean, I'm sitting here in an Airbnb and I'm like, fuck, that sounds pretty enticing. Um, but the other piece of that is like oftentimes that can be a real struggle to come back into, you know, what whatever. I mean, that is reality, right? When you're there, but I'm talking about the construct that we all have, you know, in our day-to-day lives, sometimes that are away from the mountains and sort of like what is that for each person? What is what what is difficult about that transition? Cause this in particular sounds like a pretty euphoric psychedelic experience, whatever, right? That's like memorable. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. So let's start with like what each person brings to the team in this particular instance. Sam, why don't we start with you? Do you want to know what I bring to the team or? Yeah, I do. In your own uh, eyes. Or in your own. Yeah. Yeah. I like to think that I'm pretty, uh, you know, even keeled and I just kind of go, um, you know, not a lot of ups, not a lot of downs, just kind of get the job done, you know? Adam. I, I'd like to think I'm pretty positive and try to keep things fun and light. And I might not be as even keeled. There's probably some ups and there's probably some downs. Um, but just, just try to be really stoked on these kind of experiences and, Michael <laughs> or someone can call Adam out if they want. <laughs> yeah, definitely a positive playmaker, Adam. I appreciate that about you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I think, uh, I don't know, kind of, I'm a bit of a big picture guy, you know, kind of bring a lot. I don't know. I, I, I do pretty well in most environments. I like being in the mountains. People like being with me in the mountains. These guys like being with me most of the time. And uh, I think I, I kind of like to think I'm a little bit of the glue, you know, keeping the boys together. <laughs> yeah. Like nods, nods folks or. Well, yeah, I think, but also Jason, as you're saying that like, that there's some humbleness here. I mean, like, Sam's technical proficiencies and attention to detail allows the team to be super well-oiled and move through all the terrain proficiently and have what we need in our packs. 
Mike's sense of adventure and willingness to just go for it and bring it all together from the long walk to the climb and the ski and being so talented at all those disciplines is really remarkable. Um, so I know I enjoyed, yeah, hanging out with my two good buddies, but also two mountain travelers that like were totally in their elements. And I mean, I was even saying it today while I was out ski guiding, like, let's not get down there so fast because it's better up here. And although it was only like a 64 hour odyssey, like they were, it was a pretty fun couple days and, you know, sure. We're trying to do it quickly, but I'd still rather be out there half the time. How do you, how do you integrate back in? Like how I, and I, and I'm not saying again, we don't need to like, this doesn't need to be a therapy session. Cause I can't imagine it's like easy for everyone. <laughs> right. And everyone has their own struggles and demons and this and that. Um, but I'm just curious, like how, how does one, yeah, the practice of integrating back into sort of like, you know, the daily grind and not the sort of magic that is this type of traverse. I, I think for me, um, having such an enjoyable experience, I'm just like, I need to stay fit enough, strong enough and motivated enough so that I can try to have, I don't, not, I don't want to say replicate, but try to have more of these experiences. And even like yesterday, Mike and I were hanging out and we're like, what let, let's put something on the books for the next year that can challenge us in this kind of way. And we can have fun in the mountains together as a team, because I don't want this to be a one and done. And it hasn't been, I've had many other amazing experiences with these guys and with others. Um, but I want it to be one in a lifetime of mountain experiences. Not, not just like, Oh, that one traverse we did back in the day. More like, I want to be doing these kind of adventures until the park stops like giving me a permit because it's not safe. <laughs> yeah, that that's a good sentiment, Adam. And even, I mean, even kind of, I like to kind of just keep it, you know, keep it looking forward. And it's it's nice to, uh, you know, get together and tell some stories about a cool trip that we did in the past. But it does, I don't know, it kind of feels a little bit. I feel a little bit like an uncle Rico type guy with these sort of uh podcasts of like, you know, well, back in high school, I could throw a pigskin a quarter mile. Uh, you know, you got to just keep it looking forward. There's a lot of cool stuff that happens in life and it's not all, uh, these, uh, you know, magical mountain experiences and it, you got to kind of just try and be well-rounded and, be psyched on all aspects of your life. And, um, I don't know. I mean, this one was, yeah, I've had, this one was special though. It was, it was cool. It, it took me a couple weeks coming, coming down from it. Like, just like so psyched. Um, it was really, really special. Um, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, a. Uh, it's just that, I mean, it's, balancing that celebration of what an incredible trip you have in the mountains and what that experience is like and not kind of holding on to that in that state for too long, you know, like keeping it moving forward as Sam's saying, whilst also not feeling like 
you need to do something of that level or of that high stimulation or in order to feel alive to like try to decipher the elements of that trip that really brought the most joy and like recognize that in day-to-day life and in the mountain pursuits you want to do in the future and like for me that's always been kind of a like the guiding light in reintegrating after big trips you know of like the coolest thing is we've probably gleaned in this podcast was like being out there with my boys you know and so like yeah it's been a while since we've done anything of that magnitude together but we've had plenty of good days in the Tetons we hang out and you know, have dinner gatherings or whatever and spend time in each other's company. And like, so being able to like hash out more trips in the future and just enjoy each other's company in the meantime, um, this, you know, try not to dwell on your successes or your failures for too long, you know, like learn from what you can and appreciate and congratulate for a bit and then kind of move on down the road. Ever upwards, ever onwards. All gas, no brakes. <laughs> Come on, Mike. <laughs> I was going to say something about helmets, but. <laughs> we did bring, Jason, we brought helmets. We brought helmets. We have pictures. You can see them. Thanks, folks, for listening. And please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast and head over to thehighroute.com. You got to remember those hyphens to learn more about what we were up to and how you can be involved. Lastly, the theme music you've heard comes from Albuquerque-based band Storms in the Hill Country from their album, The Self-Transforming. We'll link to it on the website and the show notes. Pay attention to the sounds. Pay attention to your dreams. Pay attention to what's all around And everything that's in between And I see my beauty in you And I become the mirror that can't close its eyes I see my beauty I become the mirror that can't